The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Um, Rebecca Bradshaw, as you know, has come to be a teacher tonight. She is a native Minnesotan. She currently lives and teaches as a guiding teacher at a meditation center in the Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts. Frequently teaches at IMS, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts also. And increasingly, and to our benefit, she is coming to teach to us. She's led two retreats. She's led two uh, winter retreats in the past several years for Twin Cities Vipassana Collective. Um, Common Ground Sister Organization that brings in teachers who are not local for extended retreats. She taught the retreat this past winter uh, at Koinia. She will not be here this February because Chaz DeCapo will be teaching, but if the stars align, she has agreed to teach with Chaz for an ex a longer retreat in 2014. Chaz and Rebecca do co-teach at IMS from time to time, I believe. Every year. Every year. Yeah. So that should be excellent. So the topic tonight is being ordinary. And with that, I do want to invite you to stay afterwards for tea. And we have some fruit and edibles afterwards if you wish to stay and talk. And uh, Rebecca, thank, thank you. you. It's good to be here. Is this loud enough? or? I don't hear anything. Do you hear anything? No. I think they want more. <laughs> just notice your greed. <laughs> you can't hear just notice wanting, wanting. <laughs> How's that? Is that good? No. Is it working at all is the question, perhaps. Where is it? Is this good? I'll keep talking to see if anything happens. Is anything happening? <laughs> no, when I touch it, there's no obnoxious noise, so that should be a sign, right? Well, I can talk loud if that's you what. Talk we'll try to get it. Come on. And see what happens. Okay. So, so the title in the paper is Being Ordinary, but the truth of the matter is I'm going to talk about a number of different themes, and hopefully they're all going to come together, and maybe they won't, so we'll see what happens tonight. Um, I was uh, reflecting the other day. Um, I went wilderness camping with my partner. We like to go canoe camping in the Adirondack Mountains of um, of New York, and they remind me a lot of the Boundary Waters, except they have mountains on top of everything. Um, but they have the, you know, the, the lakes and the um, the granite rock and the um, pine trees and the, you know, just the connected lakes. And so we go um, canoe camping there every once in a while. And I was thinking of uh, one of the Sangha members. I don't think she's here tonight, but she has said to me on a number of occasions. She says, "I love it when you tell stories about Minnesota because." Um, she said it just. She, calls, she says it's like down home dharma or down to earth dharma. So 
when I was wilderness camping, I was I was remembering um, a time when I went camping in the Boundary Waters when I was 12, and my father uh, took uh, a bunch of us camping, me and my siblings, and he had given us some lessons in how to use a compass and a map. And so at one point he said to us, um, okay, here's the camp, and uh, you know, on the map there's a lake, and um, I want you guys to go to the lake, and I'm going to go around in the canoe and I'll meet you at the lake. And um, I think I was 11, my sister was 12, my brother was 13, and he sent us out into the, into the wilderness. <laughs> now, was he crazy? <laughs> you know, that's a whole other subject. My mom's here tonight. She probably thinks he was. <laughs> but um, well, so what happened is I don't remember feeling uh, so afraid, but I do remember what happened is we went the wrong way, and we ran into him. And we, he was on a lake, and we ran into him. We thought we'd met him. And he's like, no, you, you guys are way off course. And go back out. And so he, he sent us back out. And, you know, eventually we met up with him at this, at this far lake. And what I remembered, um, and I don't know if it was at the time or later, but was kind of the astounding fact that he believed in us. And that um, he gave us these tools and sent us out to the wilderness and believed in us. And um, there's something about that kind of experience where you're sent out into the wilderness <laughs> with just some tools and you come through that you start to believe in yourself. And um, you gain confidence in your ability to navigate um, difficult terrain navigate the wilderness and take care of yourself and even in the last couple of years I've done wilderness retreats by myself where I go out canoeing and camping and um, and because of that experience I think and I was thinking about that with, with related to meditation and thinking about how what happens in meditation is we give you a few tools and we send you out to the wilderness and we were you know the wilderness of our own hearts and minds and bodies and um you know, sometimes we get off track, and then we send you out again. And uh, slowly but surely, through the process of um, navigating the wilderness, we learn to have confidence in ourselves. And we learn to build confidence that we can uh, take care of ourselves in this wilderness. You know what I mean, right? The wilderness of the heart, the mind, the body, the or just the wilderness of this human life and this... Um, connecting with this human life and and teachers and sangha believe in us at first they give us that that belief that we can do it and then as we go through it over and over again we start to believe in ourselves and have confidence in ourselves and trust ourselves and that's so important for meditation that confidence that we can um, you, you could say that we can, we can face our own personal wilderness, but we can also face the wilderness of this human life. It's a wild, wild life, right? This human life, this, this world that we've taken birth in that's so astonishingly um, uncontrollable and uh, um, astonishingly impermanent. You know, to go into that terrain, wow, that's a wilderness in the mind and the heart. And we need so much confidence if we're going to um, 
be able to navigate that. And so that's what we're learning every time we sit down to meditate. We're building that confidence that we can that we can do that. So what happens? Oh, what happens is we get we get a microphone. So we sit and meditate, right? And um, I have to tone down my voice now a little bit. So we sit and meditate, and what is that wilderness that we come across? You know, sometimes it's um, it's just the wild speed of the mind, right? I think uh, I live on a street that didn't used to be busy, and now they repaved it, and everything is kind of busy. And on the weekends, these little Japanese motorcycles, people come by on these little Japanese motorcycles. You know the ones where they're like scrunched down like this? They're red usually, <laughs> and they go blasting up the road. Yeah. Sometimes our minds are kind of like that, like, <laughs> it just goes up. And, and, uh, and it's busy, 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 very um, trying to get somewhere and get there fast. So that's one wilderness, right, that we navigate. But another one that I was thinking about, maybe it's a little more related to the talk, is um, what about when meditation is just ordinary or even boring? We don't talk about that a lot, I think, like boredom in meditation, but I think it's a pretty common experience. So I'm going to talk about that tonight, ordinariness not um, needing it to be so special. I mean, when we meditate, we sit down, we secretly hope that it's going to be dramatic, right? Special. Don't be almost every time we sit down, hope that something dramatic and special will happen. We're not really looking for ordinary life. We're looking for something that, um, something extraordinary. I, um, Last December, I went to the dentist. I had uh, I was getting a root canal prep, and um, so I was talking to the assistant. And there was some question whether I needed the root canal right at that moment. It would have to do with a cracked tooth. But I said, you know, I travel sometimes to Burma. I think I better just get this root canal and get it over with. And she's like, What are you doing, Burma? And I said, Well, I study meditation because I teach. I teach meditation. She's like, I tried that once. She said, I wound up having, I wound up thinking, is this it? And um, I said to her, um, sometimes meditation's boring. And she was like, oh, really? It was like she was relieved when I told her that because I think she found it kind of boring. It can be helpful to know that um, really nothing special is supposed to happen when you meditate. It's pretty ordinary. Trungpa Rinpoche, the rather controversial Tibetan master, um, who has some really good wisdom. Uh, his life was kind of had some questionable practices, but he said, "Practice is boring, boring, boring." That's what I love about him. Just put things like right out there. Practice is boring, boring, boring. Um, Sometimes it's a bit like uh, in England they have this television channel I've heard that, um, you know, like a cable channel, and it's called Watching Paint Dry. And um, they say that every 24 hours they paint it. 
You know, like give it a color, and then you can watch it dry. <laughs> Meditation's about that interesting. It's like, oh, another breath, you know, all that thought again. I also came across, I just have to share this for people who have done um, perhaps more intensive practice. Somebody sent me, a meditator friend sent to me a few years ago. Where is it? Somebody had written, um, he titled his blog, The Dullest Blog in the World. October 16, 2005, opening a cupboard door. There was a cupboard in the corner of the room. I reached out my hand and gripped the door handle. I pulled the door towards me, thereby opening the cover. Scratching my knee, September 10, 2004. <laughs> my knee had a slight itch. I reached out my hand and scratched the knee in question. The itch was relieved and I was able to continue with my activities. <laughs> July 21, 2004. Moving an item from one place to another. There was an object occupying a space on my table. Using my hand, I picked up the item from its place. Having considered my options for a moment, I placed the object on a different area of the table. <laughs> That's pretty ordinary. <laughs> There's something I just love about that blog, and I'm not even sure I can articulate what it is, but <laughs> it does remind me of a meditation retreat a little bit. <laughs> So, what was I trying to say? I think what happens with meditation is, you know, we we sit down and we think something should be happening. And, um, you know, we think, I I came to meditation to be enlightened, you know, so something should be happening here. And it's not. I'm I'm rather bored, actually. And um, it definitely ruins our self-aggrandizement plans, right? It... um, one teacher said it's very anti-credential. Meditation is very anti-credential. You can't like hang up your PhD in Dharma sign or something. It's like you sit down and you want something special to happen, and then you know it doesn't. And um, wow, what do we do about the hope that we are going to make ourselves special through meditation? It's actually kind of a wearing down process. <laughs> it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think about the Buddha's enlightenment story sometimes, and um, you know, it said that on the night of his final enlightenment, that uh, Mara, the personification of, oh, let's see, the personification of um, unskillfulness. He's kind of like the Buddhist devil in some ways. Um, so he's just, you know, sending everything out after the Buddha, trying to to bring him down and finally um, he says to the Buddha what right do you have you know to wish to be fully enlightened and the Buddha just touches the ground the earth is my witness and you know he didn't go like this <laughs> he was like it was so simple it was he touched the ground and to me there's something about that that's so ordinary and so human and so um embracing of humanity and ordinariness. 
He wasn't, you know, talking about getting away anywhere. He was talking about being right here, just in this ordinary body, human life. One of my favorite authors is Lynn Jensen. He's a um, Zen teacher. Oops, i be careful here. Is that still working all right? Yeah. In um, his book, Deep Down Things, he says, the Buddha's awakening was more humbling than elevating. His long pursuit of truth ending in the ordinary, everyday truth of the moment. The enlightenment he'd so long sought after turned out to be a common occurrence after all, shared by everything that swam, flew, walked, or crawled the earth with him. His very mind and body borrowed on loan from the dirt under his feet. That, that makes me feel relaxed. I don't know about you, but it, it's, um, it's so uh, down to earth. And many moments of enlightenment in the Buddha's teachings describe um, very ordinary moments. There's uh, one um, nun, one of the early nuns, nuns named Patachara, and she, uh, she had quite a trying life before she became a nun. I won't go into the details, but it was, it was quite bad, as um, almost all the nun stories were. And so in, she has this enlightenment poem that she wrote when she um, became fully realized. And the first part is like, wow, I've been working at this so many years. Like, why am I not enlightened yet? So the first part of the poem is kind of a, a, a little bit of complaining. <laughs> I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace, she says. And then she says, bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. And I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle, pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. There's so many enlightenment poems from the times of the Buddha that have these very ordinary moments in them of just connecting with, with um, life. You know, this is very simple. She washes her feet. She sits on the bed. She turns down the lamp. Just, um, just being with, right? Just life. I was, and when I was camping, I went to this one pond. It, it's called Grassy Pond, and it was on this trail. Me and my partner hiked it. It was on this trail that was off in the wilderness, um, not very used trail. And the pond wasn't so big, but we were just sitting there in this at this pond, and I got this sense of just how life goes on and on, and just the power of the life force going on in such ordinary ways, and like the seasons change, and and um, Things eat, and they're eaten, they're born, they die. Um, all of it just so entirely ordinary, and yet so beautiful and powerful, just that sense of life going on and on. And that, you know, no people needed to be around to manage it, but it was just, um, 
that power of that that flow and um, yeah, that life force. And I think that we love the Japanese uh, hermit poet poets for the same reason that there's this like real resting in um, nothing special needing to go go on, just this uh, simplicity. One of my favorite poems of all times is by Ryokan, the Japanese hermit poet, and he says, Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. Like every time I read read that too, it's just like I feel so relaxed. The the acceptance is extraordinary. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) Can we say that? Can we say that ourselves? Last year, a foolish meditator. This year, no change. We should try it out, you know? Suzuki Roshi said, no matter how many years you sit doing zazen, you will never become anything special. <laughs> Am I depressing any of you? Had you, <laughs> had you hoped? And <laughs> I'm dashing your hopes now. Um, the problem with, you know, with meditation, if we hope it will make us special, we're just going to become disillusioned at some point. Um, so we can give up that project, perhaps, and relax into what is. A number of years ago, when I would I would find myself trying to be perfect, which is kind of another form of um, trying to be special, right? You know, like I, would, I, I have a, I do have a perfectionist like, a tendency. So this, you know, like wanting to do everything just right, like give this dharma talk perfectly, and. Um, I had this mantra that I use sometimes that was really helpful. When I would notice I was doing that, I would say, I'm completely mediocre. (laughs) (laughs) It was really helpful. (laughs) Because really, then I would be like, maybe that's really okay. You know? Um, It would make me laugh. I'm completely mediocre. What a relief. Uh, I was teaching, I teach the team, one of the retreats I teach with Chaz is a teen retreat, and um, we have 20 helpers and about 63 teenagers, and um, you could sign your son. (laughs) Part of the fun of it is the 20 helpers. Where all people, you know, meditated are very um, dedicated to the Dharma, and so we all work together doing something so extraordinarily beautiful, and we developed a strong team together. And so there was one person on the team named Dave, who um, Dave's like in his 30s. He's, he's teaching uh, some meditation uh, out in other settings. Um, he's not. He doesn't look like your typical meditator. Typical. You know, like he has tattoos all up and down his arms, probably all over his whole body, probably. And um, I love Dave. He's so great. And so he was telling me, he said, 
Well, you know when you go on retreat and how you keep looking at the bulletin board and you, you hope that there will be a note for you? Um, for those who've been on retreat, you can probably relate to that. Especially like he's talking about IMS, Insight Meditation Society, because like you come out of Dharma Hall, the board's right there, and there's a lot on the board. And you know, so it's like you always, you know, like I look and I always have this little hope there'll be a note for me. And he said, so one time, he said, oh, more than once, he said a few times. I wrote myself a note. <laughs> he said, because, you know, then I would have that rush when I would see it there, you know. I said to him, what did your note say? And he said, well, one note said, you're trying hard enough. I was like, oh, that's so great, you know. You're trying hard enough. Because he also had, would have this like perfectionist streak, like I should be doing it better, or, or, or I should be trying more, I should be getting up earlier, whatever, that kind of pressure. You're trying hard enough. That's so kind, right? I was thinking about mindfulness during this sitting a little bit. You know how hard we try to be mindful? And we all go through these phases in our practice, I think, or at least once, where we make this, like, I'm going to be mindful kind of vow, right? And we're, like, going to be mindful all the time. And um, what happens? <laughs> it's kind of a tough period in practice, usually, right? So, like, we're, like, I'm going to be mindful. And we find that we're, notice that we're, like, not very mindful at all, right? Like, Moments of mindfulness are few and far between. And then this is like a perfectionist streak, I think, too, because then we get really hard on ourselves, right? It's like, oh, okay, i got to try harder. I'm not trying hard enough. If I try harder, I could be mindful. And um, we create kind of a mindfulness prison for ourselves, right? It's like, really, it starts to feel like a prison, like, oh, I have to be mindful. How am I going to be mindful? And um, so I tried that. And... Uh, there's different ways of looking at it, but one way that I've looked at it that I found um, kind of useful is uh, seeing the benefits of mindlessness. Um, this is radical, just so you know. <laughs> I mean, the Buddha talked about the benefits of mindfulness. He did not talk about the benefits of mindlessness. Um, and I totally appreciate everything the Buddha said about the benefits of mindfulness, but in some ways, when we when we um, when we have such a strong determination that we must be mindful, it's like we disown mindfulness, mindlessness, and then mindlessness, which is such a huge part of our experience, becomes something that um, we're not interested in. And uh, mindlessness is very ordinary, isn't it? So I'm teaching this monthly group uh, at my meditation center starting uh, the third week of September on mindfulness. And the first whole month is going to be dedicated to mindlessness. And basically, it's be like, let's get interested in mindlessness. Like, what? My teacher, gave, she really helped me to understand that the only way I could really be mindful is if I gave myself permission to be mindless. You know, I'm not saying being mindless is a good thing, okay? Don't don't read this wrong. But what I'm saying is that it's 
is a very much a part of our human life, and that if we try to banish it, we are just, um, it's, a, it's a form of personal terrorism. <laughs> um, and that, that there are advantages to mindlessness. Um, personally, I think, I, I have a lot of compassion for my mind and my heart that need mindlessness sometimes. Like, mindlessness protects us when we can't be with the truth of the way things are. That's what it does. So, um, I would say that mindlessness protects my heart and mind from the stark, the stark truth of life. Like, we're going back to impermanence, uncontrollability, death. You know, that, that, that edge. Mindlessness gives me a break. You know, it's like the heart and mind rest a little bit. So we can have a lot of compassion for that rather than seeing it as something that we, an experience that somehow shouldn't be happening or that, um, that we want to get rid of. So it's been a half hour and I haven't really started my talk yet. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, you know, I've gone through a few pages, but it's not really what I was going to talk about. So let's see here. What do we want to include? So after we give up perhaps the project of um, making uh, meditation making us special or uh, um, give up the project of trying to be mindful every moment of um, our feeling like we must be mindful every moment of our lives, we can um, settle in perhaps to what is, to, to the ordinary. You know, that's, like, that's the settling process. We have to go through all of that, but then we start to settle into what is. One teacher said that attention is the most basic form of love. Through it we bless and are blessed. You know, attention to the ordinary life, there's something settling about that. And then we start to notice, like, what parts of our lives we think may be worthy of attention and what parts may not be worthy in our in our hearts and our minds. Where do we draw the line? Where do we draw lines? Like so much of life is ordinary. Is that like what we're not interested in and we're only interested if it's extraordinary? Where's the lines between what we'll connect with? I read a story of a man who, um, he noticed how much time it took for tying his shoes and um, he calculated how many hours of his life he would spend tying his shoes and putting on his belt, and then he decided it was too much and only bought shoes with Velcro, Velcro and pants that didn't need a belt. <laughs> it's an interesting line there, right, between what's worth connecting with.
I read this great book called World Enough in Time. I read it in the last couple of years. I can't remember when exactly. By somebody whose last name is McEwen. And she was talking about this Japanese word called ma. And it's a word that's hard to translate, but she was saying that it had something to do with like a vibrant emptiness or the silence between words or the space in a room. Ma. And there's, there's so much power in ma, right? And it's also so ordinary. But I think of meditation as a form of ma, of creating some space for that vibrant uh, emptiness or um, the silence. And in this book, she told this story of somebody who created a certain park in New York City. So New York City, it's a a little ways away from here. When I grew up in Minnesota and I went to the University of Minnesota my first year, I met somebody from New York City. I thought he had a speech impediment. (laughs) And I met my second New Yorker and I'm like, oh, it's an accent. But anyway, where I live, it's not that far away. You can take a train and go down for the day if you want to. And um, it's, it's, it's a place with a lot of energy, Manhattan. It's, it's, it's really mind-boggling, the energy there. So I was down there this summer with my Argentinian friend and her 13-year-old son, Pedro. And uh, they were flying back to Argentina, so I spent as much time as I can tolerate Manhattan, which isn't a lot. But... I do like to go because it's kind of interesting. So one thing Pedro wanted to do was walk over the Brooklyn Bridge into Brooklyn. So we walked from Manhattan into Brooklyn. And when we got to the other side of the river, my friend Alicia and I were just like, oh. You know, the energy was like so much more settled. It was like, we were just like, wow, this is so much better. And we said, Pedro, which one do you like better? And he says, oh, prefiero Manhattan. I like Manhattan better. And we said, why? He said, which means it boils, <laughs> you know, and that's that was exactly it. It's like it boils, Manhattan boils, and um, our minds, you know, it reminds me of our minds in many ways. We have a Manhattan in our minds, all of us. It's a, it's that boiling energy, that stimulation, that you know. And there's something that can be useful about it, but it doesn't leave so much room for ma, you know that emptiness or stillness. So I heard of a performance art, or an art collector who did, in, in spring of 2006, he set up a park in Manhattan. And what he did is he took a parking spot, he found a parking spot, and he made it into a park. Like, he put a bench there and, like, some sod down. And, like, a, he, I think he even had a New York park sign there. And there's something about that I just love. You know, it's like a little bit of ma, a little bit of ma in the middle of Manhattan. And, um, wow, I think we need those little parks in our mind, too, right, our, in our lives. Little ma with that yerve, that boiling energy, that stimulation. And somehow that seems to be pretty ordinary, too, that making those spaces. Thank you.
I think what we worry about with, with um, ordinariness, um, you know, like not uh, meditation, not producing anything, it's, um, it makes us uneasy, right? We, we have this, like, ethic in our culture that we have to be producing something to be worthy of existence. And, like, that settling into, like, not producing or not trying to be something special, wow, we, we like, freak out. It's like, what? Am I worthy to be alive if I just sit here? You know, at some level that kind of conversation happens. And um, it's like a fire that we have to go through, I think, to really give up the... Uh, the goal to make it special and to settle into what's ordinary. I told some of you that um, at one point my teacher, uh, I was on a retreat, uh, this was many years ago, I was on a retreat and she basically told me I could sit one time a day and the rest of the day I was not supposed to meditate. And the only thing I really, she said I would, was allowed to do was something called useless gazing which means that I could sit at a, at a window with a cup of tea and look out if I wanted to, you know. But I wasn't really supposed to meditate. And um, it was excruciating, you know. Like, to not meditate was excruciating. It was so, so hard. Because I was like, I'm not producing anything, you know. This is a complete waste of time. Well... If I went through this fire for like 10 days of like, you know, like really feeling like I was supposed to be producing something I was not. And then when I got through the end of this fire, it was pretty intense. A lot of fear, a lot of stuff came up. The end of the 10 days and I somehow went through this fire, it was so fantastic. It was like, oh, I can just be. You know? We can just be. It's so simple. I have a, a student of mine who taught a graduate course. And um, it was something to do with, I don't, uh, I think it had something to do with mindfulness and education. I'm not really sure exactly, but it was some something with education. I know that. And so she had them meditate at for 10 minutes at the beginning of the seminar um, and at the end she did evaluations and she said like half evaluations they really liked it and like half evaluations they really did not like it and and a couple got angry that they had to do it and one student calculated how much those 10 minutes cost him in his tuition like, 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 you know, the 10 minutes, how much tuition he paid, like how much he paid for those 10 minutes. And I found that so um, fascinating, right? We don't have a lot of tolerance, I guess, in our culture for not doing, <laughs> um, for being. All my 3815... I knew this was going to happen. 
have to decide what I want to share with you. I have to share this story with you. I love it so much. I might have shared it at the retreat last year. I can't remember. It's um, from um, the famous uh, composer, John Cage. I gave a performance of my piece called Empty Words Part 4 for the students of Troy Young Trumpet at Neuropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. This was in 1974. The piece goes on for two and a half hours and contains long silences of four or five minutes duration. And then out of that silence, I just say a few letters of the alphabet following a score which was written through chance operations from the journal of Henry David Thoreau. Meanwhile, there are these very faint images of Thoreau's drawings being projected on a screen behind me, but they are very dim and hardly change at all, perhaps once every 20 minutes. I thought it was an ideal piece for a Buddhist audience, but they became absolutely furious and yelled at me and tried to get me to stop the performance. <laughs> there was a near riot, is what I heard. I mean, when I read about it. Um, the next morning, I had a meeting with Trigun Trumpa, and he asked me to join the faculty at Naropa. <laughs> and then when he was talking about it later with people he said boredom comes not from without but from within and again it's this kind of interesting intolerance of boredom right or, or not much happening but then Trumpa gave him a job. I love that last line. You know, it's like, oh, I met with Trumpa, and he says, yeah, come on. We need this. We need, the, you know, this challenge. one time when I went to see uh, Tigman Han. He um, does retreats, and at the end of the retreat, if you come, you can take the five precepts with him. And uh, I wanted to do this. So this was many years ago, and um, unfortunately, the ceremony's at 6.30 in the morning. So I had to get up like at 4 and drive two hours. And so I, I go rushing into... Um, the Omega Institute, I mean, I'm rushing up, uh, trying to get to the hall for 6.30. It's like 6.25. And, um, and then as I'm rushing up, I suddenly I see him coming with his entourage. I've never seen anybody walk with such a complete absence of... Um, He was completely where he was. <laughs> there was a complete absence of being ahead of himself in any way, you know. And so I just watched him walk, and that was like my be best, biggest teaching of that day was just to watch how he could be completely in the moment, not ahead of himself. And I and I did juxtapose that with my entrance. <laughs> You know, I learned so much, I think, because my entrance was, and I was like, oh, you can walk like this. And basically, he was saying, you can be like this, you know, just here, here. 
And I'm still learning from seeing that so many years ago because I keep, you know, I remember it and then it's like, oh, I settled into just this life. Ordinary, a step, and yet he's, he was so just with the step. I encourage you to give yourselves time to be bored, if you can. <laughs> you know, it depends on where you, what your life is like right now. It's not always possible, but schedule it in if you can. It's, um, it's a good practice because uh, it counteracts that striving. It counteracts that rushing. It counteracts that we have to produce something or be somebody special or do something special. And... Um, teaches us to connect with what's ordinary. And then when we really connect with what's ordinary, it's not so ordinary. It's rather extraordinary. But if we do it to make it extraordinary, then it's not. (laughs) There's a paradox, right? We develop, I, I guess you could say, we develop confidence in ourselves to um, to explore that wilderness in the mind, that whole one of, of wanting to be something special, wanting life to be extraordinary, wanting um, to gain something from meditation when meditation is really about letting go, right? Basically, I'm talking about clinging and non-clinging. It's just different language, right? Learning to let go into the ordinary and nothing special. Until you know that you're really, you're trying hard enough. I think uh, that maybe that's a good place to stop so that we have some time for questions. But let's just sit for a minute first. Thank you for your attention to the time. I was thinking I was probably talking about the same time as Mitt Romney, and you all chose to come here <laughs> instead of listening to the Republican convention. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> Oh, what is he talking about? Nine o'clock? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> we can still go home.
So we have maybe 20 minutes or so if there's thoughts, questions, comments, reflections. Anything? that at times in life if you want to change you need to strive you need to make an effort and that at other times maybe more what I was talking about might seem um, important and how do you balance the two yeah yeah you do have to make an effort right I mean you all made an effort to be here you did something or you wouldn't you know that's an effort you could have stayed home and Pop your feet on the couch and whatever, you know. Um, but I think I think I think what you're saying is true, and I think what I'm pointing towards is the quality of effort that we make in some ways. So let's say you want to change. Give me an idea, maybe something one might want to change, for example. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So learning a second language, for example, takes effort. Right, right. Yep. There's a time and a place, right, for like um, other ways that we expand our lives. Learning a second language is beautiful. Um, and, and then I guess the only thing I would say is just looking at the quality of our effort around that. Like, do we... Is our wanting to learn, you could say, a second language like this, or is there a lot of this going on, and like, how do we learn it? Do we beat ourselves up if we don't remember, or do we have a more relaxed atmosphere? Most of us Westerners tend to try too hard. It's just a cultural tendency. Now, not everybody's like that. It's true. So whenever you hear a Dharma talk, you do have to you know, think, like, what applies to me and what doesn't? What is relevant to my life and what isn't? Because... Yeah, we got a lot of people here that could be different, right? But um, most of us, there's a there's an energy that is um, uh, tight and contracted when we try to change something in ourselves or for ourselves. That uh, and there's a lot there's a, there's a lot of suffering there. So that would be one way that maybe to look at it, like. Not something that you, you have to achieve right now. 
So you're saying you could, because I'm not sure if I can hear you, um, that you have to see it as perhaps a part of a process, right? And that part of that process might include some stress. I, yeah, I'm thinking like being mindful is in the same way it's a kind of process, right? And part of the process is being mindless. I mean, it just happens. It, it's, it, it's not like I'm saying we should go out and purposely be mindless. But... Um, Yeah, I'm. I'm not quite. I know I'm. Not, I'm missing exactly what you're looking for, but I'm. Not. If you were poor and you wanted to get out of poverty, that would take a lot of effort. Yeah. I think that's great. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, that's true. That, there's a part of life that there is a way we make effort, and that's very helpful. And even, right, just getting yourself on the cushion, doing that, setting up your life that has reminders so that you can be mindful, all of that still gets included. Yeah, so not like we don't have to throw all that out. Great. So something you let go of then helped you to have more space to quote unquote move forward or make progress or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm not against making effort. Did I sound like I was? <laughs> Maybe I did. <laughs> I'm not against making effort. I think um, we have to make effort, right? It's really important. Most of us uh, know that and start with making too much effort. I, I was kind of like, you know, like, oh, you're going too far to the right, going to the left a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, um, no political. <laughs> no political suggestions being made there. <laughs> um, uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about how much of this process I control. Yeah, this is key to what I was saying. Great, I think I have great, I think I have great control, and then I realize I don't really have yes. control over this, and I'm very much a worker. Yeah. Overachiever, and I just slot right into there, and um, that carries over in my practice. And that's yes. From day one, I'm aware of it sometimes, and not aware of it sometimes. And when I think about mindlessness, that just automatically arises <laughs> because of that protection you talked about, or because it won't happen, yeah. or whatever. I I get, and then I think about the striving and the work ethic that I put in, great effort. You know, I take pride in that, right? That's my training. I, I don't know when I'm generating it, feeding it, controlling it, or when I to, to think that, oh, I can control when I can let that go. I get all confused of what I'm right. controlling and what I'm not controlling. Right. Did everybody hear? Yeah? 
there's your koan. <laughs> no, really, like this is a great investigation. Like what do we really control in this heart and mind and what do we not? And how does change really happen? Maybe that's the root of your question too. It's like how does change happen? And I think that most of us think that change happens through will. Now there's a place for will because it used skillfully it gets us to do certain things go in certain directions but with the mind and the heart can you will them to do what you want them to do I mean check it out right and if we can't will them then what then what do we do this is like yeah this is intense questions right but in some ways that's like why I allow my heart and mind to be mindless because I can't stop them anyway. So why, <laughs> why add the extra stress and tension of acting like I could <laughs> or like beating myself up because that's what happens, right? And that's why a nice response is compassion when we need that protection, right? But this is the crux of the matter is what do we control? And the, the paradox is that we have to act as if we have choice and, and therefore some control. It's necessary to act that way. And yet, how much control do we have? Yeah. It's one of those paradoxes, in, I would say, in practice. He said if people could control everything they have, life wouldn't be worth living. <laughs> anyway, the, when I said it's your koan, it's like it's, it's a vibrant question for you, and it's a great question. Underneath, it's 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 not the hope that we can control this heart and mind. We wish, you know, there's so much hope that we that we can make it kind of do what we want it to do, right? But then the the, the great response of of turning towards kindness, that's great. 
Okay, corrective. Sometimes I say when mindfulness doesn't cut it, try compassion. I mean, the wilderness of the mind and the heart is that we develop the capacity to hold that we can't control what happens. You know, we don't go there easily. But when we when we can hold, when we can develop the the ability to hold that with so much kindness and compassion, it's really okay. And then we still we still look at causes and conditions. The Buddha talked about causes and conditions. That's what makes things happen, right? So a lot of rather than trying to control the mind and the heart, it's like look at the causes and conditions that make certain things happen. So look at um, the causes and conditions of mindlessness, which is going to be part of what that first month of my class is going to be about. It's like, what causes us to be mindless? Like, what's happening when that happens? What are the causes and conditions that actually bring forth mindfulness in our lives? And you know, and then, and then we can um, work to create the circumstances that are proximate cause of what we want to happen, happen, you know, like what we want to increase in our lives, mindfulness, kindness. So what does help us be more mindful? I mean, that's like the, the question. Not like, can we make ourselves be more mindful, but what, like, what is it really in our lives that, that brings forth mindfulness in this heart and mind? You know, coming to talk like this, it helps, right? You go home, or you're, you know, and you're thinking a little bit about it, and it reminds you, or, or meditating every day reminds us, right? That's a cause and condition, you know, that leads to mindfulness. So it's not like we're just hopeless, but it's a little different than to think of it that way rather than I'm going to make something happen. No, I'm going to look at what causes and conditions nurture what is good and wholesome and Beautiful and helpful. Yeah. Maybe that's even a little bit of an answer to your question. I think maybe this has something to do with things and how you see We're getting into the predestination versus free will conversation. <laughs> it's always dangerous territory. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think um, I think the Buddha would go back to causes and conditions. Well, it's very complex. So, so like in in Buddhist philosophy, like a moment has myriad causes and conditions that influence the outcome, and um, 
So within that, there's flexibility that would be more towards free will. (laughs) And yet there is some um, tendency towards some kind of um, predestination from the energy of karma and like the kind of the the, uh, accumulated energy of um, our minds changed from our past actions and past moments. So it's a mix, really. It doesn't come down solidly on like one side or the other. But um, I'm not going to say anything more about it because it <laughs> might get too complicated. But so it is. It does come back somewhat to causes and conditions and that we do the best we can and, and we act as agents that have choice because that's what's helpful. I mean, if we just sit there and say, I don't have any choice, that's not going to be very helpful in our lives. So it's more helpful to to act with the energy of, of in, it, well, it's planting intention and also another Buddhist uh, thought. You had something to say? Well, I know you, you touched on this in your talk, but I'm just interested if you have any additional practices that have helped you grow comfortable with being ordinary, ordinariness. Mm-hmm. I know that harshness or aversion towards our experience when it's not what we want it to be. Was that in there, too, in your yeah. question? Yeah. I mean, basically, the, you know, you kept repeating the concept of, uh, you know, things uh, being nothing special and just what yeah. they are. Yeah. And you notice that, you notice that kind of happening within you. So for me, it's being mindful of that. Um, and a lot of it is is calling in or learning the flavor of softening around that, which is really compassion. But learning, starting to learn the flavor of what it's like I can feel, I feel it in my body. It's kind of like learning how to see the heart, that aversion has a hard edge, right? And it's like the compassion starts to melt the edges and soften it. Um, but it's like acclimating, like learning what that actually is. And first of all, you stumble upon it by accident. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, what was that? <laughs> and then you like learn like how to call forth the kindness. It's really like learning how to call forth the kindness that we have within for ourselves, our experience. And the more we do it, the more we, we know how to do it. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's causes and conditions. Doing it once conditions it to arise again. So uh, it's, it's recognizing when um, 
when you have a taste of that to really recognize it. Now, what makes the taste happen? Mental meditation is great. If you, I don't know if you've done much of it, but it's really can be quite helpful. Um, for me, also seeing how painful it is to do that for me was was helpful. Now, that's different. Not everybody works that way. But for me, it's like when I started to really feel that turning against myself, that harsh edge of it, and I felt the pain of it, at a certain point I'd go like, wow, I don't think I want to do that, you know, because it's painful. So when you recognize the pain of it, you start to um, kind of question that habit. And uh, then that gives you the the chance or the willingness to try something different. A lot of it's trial and error. You try one thing and you see what happens. You try something else, you see what happens. Um, it's risky to give up. See, that's the other thing is you start to see that that the aversion is a protection. That, that kind of turning against yourself, that you're trying to protect yourself. And that giving it up, you have, it's like you, you, have, you have to be willing to risk. Um, there's a fear there sometimes in giving it up. So it's like exploring all of that. Exploring. It's like going deeper and deeper into the aversion. You know, it's that you got to go through instead of you can't get around. You go through. Um, it takes courage. It takes courage to let go of that aversion. That's just one component, but, but it came to my mind at the moment. Sometimes it's helpful. Yeah, sometimes just even putting your hand on your heart or whatever brings softening. Whatever brings softening. That's the, the way to go. The version might be there still, but it softens and softens. I wish I had a better answer for you. <laughs> Maybe, um, oh, it's a quarter of. That's usually about when we end, right? I think we should we should head that way. Um, so let's just take a lot that last few seconds, and then I'll stay here for a few more minutes if, something, if anybody has something they still want to ask. And I think there's tea and crackers and things like that. Okay, so just, just a few seconds to end together. And then. May our time here tonight together be the cause and condition for the arising of mindfulness and compassion in our lives. Thank you. Take good care. Enjoy your weekend.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.